we are going to do our teaching text for today. If you would stand in reverence for God's word. It's Philippians 1, 12 through 18. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. This is the word of God for the people of God. Noel, thank you for your, you all can be seated. Obvious lack of confidence that I'm capable of preaching shorter. <laughs> all of you seem to share that lack of confidence. I am nothing if not long-winded. Okay, I'm so delighted uh, to get to be together today. We're going to mix it up, uh, sit up a little bit, okay? Uh, you may even want to let the air flow in your back if that's possible. Get the fan, the Chinese fan going in the back. We're going to start today uh, with just this, this centering prayer to help us as we're gearing up to reflect on the scriptures. So take a deep breath, maybe even put your hands open on your knees, just this posture of receptivity and openness. I'm going to read this centering prayer one time, let the words just wash over you, and then I want you to pray it with me the second time. So deep breath in and out, receiving whatever God has for you and just letting go of stress and anxieties. Pray, Abba. Lead me into the living water of Scripture and replenish me with your written word so that I may more fully share in your life with peace, wisdom, and courage. Amen. Pray with me this time aloud. Abba, lead me into the living water of Scripture and replenish me with your written word so that I may more fully share in your life with peace and wisdom and courage. Amen. Amen. I have special love and appreciation for you in my heart who came on Sweaty Sunday. I, I anticipate that it'll be a little hotter at the next service, so I think maybe I'll just do a lengthy discourse on hell or something like that. Just use the opportunity. Uh, last week, we started a, a new study. My friend Spencer came in from Missouri and started this for us, talking about uh, the book of Philippians. It's a letter to a young church. We're, we're a young church. And Paul is writing this letter either from house arrest in Rome or he's actually imprisoned in Rome and awaiting execution by the state. And he's addressing this letter to a church that he started in Greece, a church that he has a lot of love and affection for. And, and a number of things prompted this letter from Paul to the church. The first was this, this letter serves as a thank you note. They had sent him gifts to provide for him while he was in prison in Rome, and, uh, and he's sending this, way, this back as a, like a thank you note. 
Uh, second, he's sending the letter with a guy named Epaphroditus, who we're going to meet at the end of chapter 2. And uh, they sent Epaphroditus to hang with Paul and to take care of his needs, but Paul is sending him back, and he wants to verify, don't give him a hard time. It's not like he did a bad job. There's a good reason why Epaphroditus is coming back, so be kind to the guy. Third, uh, Paul knows that the church in Philippi is going through a difficult time. They are a small community of people who say Jesus is Lord, living in a, a colony of Roman veterans who believe that Caesar is Lord. And this, this creates tension between the Christians in Philippi and the rest of the, uh, the Philippian community. And so he's writing amid persecution to encourage them and to build them up. Philippians on the whole is a really encouraging letter. In the text last week, Paul expresses this deep affection and gratitude and love he has for the Philippian believers. And one of the things that we know about the church in Philippi was that it was almost exclusively Jewish, uh, non-Jewish, excuse me, exclusively Gentile. Most of the other letters have some kind of appeal to uh, Jewish believers in their mix, but this one we get the sense is primarily Gentile, uh, which had to be kind of cool for Paul who knew that the whole way of Jesus started within Jewish circles, but now it has spread in such a way that now this entirely Gentile community has come to believe that Jesus is Lord. It's kind of like seeing the grandchildren in the faith. It's, it's, it means something to them. I have a similar feeling when I think about, you know, I have a deep affection for the people who helped us start our church just, uh, you know, three and a half years ago. Some of you remember the 333,000 challenge. Some of you were there when we ripped up pink carpet at the old building. Uh, Some of you most recently sweated it out in the lawn, and now we're sweating it out together in the building. So I love people who helped us start it, but it's also very sweet to me to meet people who had no connection to the original folks who ended up helping start the church and who have just kind of found it. And it gives me a confidence that the Holy Spirit is building Christ's church. It's so cool. And I think Paul had to have had that same kind of confidence that God is doing stuff. And for Paul, seeing this Philippian community, seeing all of these believers in the middle of a Roman city, uh, filled him with confidence. And that's what he told the believers in the text last week. Confidence of this. He who began a good work in you is going to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, as we shift to these next six verses, verses 12 through 18, we see Paul acting out this confidence in a real-world scenario. Now, some of you know what it's like to have a boss or to have served under a leader who projects confidence. Their, Their words communicate confidence. I have never been more optimistic about the future of this company. But you interact with them interpersonally, and actually they seem like they're incredibly terrified and stressed out. Or they smile when the camera's on, but privately they are, they are freaking out. And, and that kind of disparity between the public presentation and the private reality uh, often creates anxiety and stress in those who follow that leader. But we learn in the text today that Paul is not just communicating his confidence to the church. It's a lived kind of confidence that he feels. And he's not just confident because things are circumstantially great. Actually, things are going uh, in a difficult way for him in lots of ways. There are are meaningful circumstantial stressors that would erode my confidence and yours were we in his situation. First, he's in chains. 
He's in chains either under house arrest or he's actually in prison awaiting his execution by the state. Second, he's estranged from his community, these people that he loved. They could be as far as 800 miles away. Third, the people that he loves are going through a difficult time facing persecution. And fourth, oddly enough, the text seems to indicate there are people who, knowing that Paul is imprisoned, are deliberately preaching the gospel in order to create more trouble for him. If he's as confident as he says he is, how is he going to handle all of these crises? How is he going to navigate these circumstantial stressors? Well, I want to attempt to clarify Paul's message in verses 12 through 18 uh, with contrast. I have paraphrased this version, calling it the worried victims version, adapted by yours truly. And we're going to read this with a different kind of tone. The worried victims version of Philippians 1, 12 through 18. Now, I want you to know that what has happened to me is a tremendous setback for the sake of the gospel. As a result, it's become clear that the palace is wrongly imprisoning Christians for practicing our faith. Because of my imprisonment, Christians throughout Rome are all the more reluctant to proclaim the gospel and must now live in a state of panic and fear. You must know that some are preaching Christ with false motivation, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, risking their necks unnecessarily because of the unjust and unfair policies of the government. The former preach Christ, how do you pronounce that? (laughs) Selfishly, so they can make more trouble for us real Christians. You must know that this is an existential threat to us. The important thing in all of this is that we must fight to keep our rights from being taken from us. Because of these threats, I am currently freaking out and so should you. The worried victim's version. In this made-up version of mine, Paul presents as angry and anxious and a victim. Life is happening to this Paul. And Paul believes that, that everything in life is on him to figure out. Consequently, persecution and prison and the things that are the, ex, the, the circumstantial stressors, uh, they're all on him to kind of muscle through. These represent, in the worried victim's version, major impediments to the advancement of the gospel. In the worried victim's version, Paul sees his rights as primarily being from the state, so persecution invites a, threat, a, a fight against the state. And Paul has this contagious anxiety because the likelihood of success seems thin, especially when it's all on his shoulders. But this, of course, is nothing like how Paul actually communicates in the text. Did you see how he began in verse 12? He said, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. All the stuff that's happened to me, actually, it turns out to be really, really great for God's purposes in the world. Uh, There's a lot (laughs) encoded in that, that phrase, what has actually happened to me. If we go back to the book of Acts, we can see the story of what happened to Paul, and it's fascinating. You may, you know his conversion story that he starts out as a critic of the gospel. He starts out as one who approves of killing Stephen, the first martyr. He's actively hunting down Christians until he meets Jesus. His life is radically transformed. 
And then he becomes the church's most ardent supporter and evangelist, going on these great missionary journeys all throughout the Mediterranean, uh, starting churches, facing imprisonment, preaching the gospel. Uh, He's been imprisoned. He's been ridiculed. He's been blamed for inciting riots. He's been thrown out of cities. He's been stoned, left for dead, all for the sake of Christ. And after having gone through all of this, in Acts chapter 21, Paul goes back to Jerusalem where the church was born, and there are people who see Paul as a major threat. There are Jewish Jewish people who see Paul as a major threat, and they want to wipe him out. He's a marked man. They regard him as a traitor. And in Acts chapter 21, upon seeing Paul in the temple, the people freak out. And the Romans, observing there's there's a kind of riot happening in the temple, arrest Paul because they take him to be the insurrectionist. And he speaks for himself saying, look, this is uh, where we we see things differently here. These people don't yet fully appreciate what's gone on with the person of Jesus. But Paul is such a lightning rod. He continues to be imprisoned and and they're afraid that somebody's going to kill him. And so they ship him off to Caesarea to avoid getting killed. In Caesarea, Paul sits in that jail for over two years. For two years, he's sitting in prison. He meets one governor. The governor is out. After two years, another governor comes back. Chelsea, I'm going to have to have you take over. It got a little wonky there. And rather than settling things with a lower court, Paul says, look, I think I need to appeal to Caesar. I want to talk to the man in charge of all of this and make my case as a follower of Christ. So Paul is sent from Caesarea on his way to Rome. He's sent by ship. They put him on a ship. He prophesies to the captain, listen, if you don't follow my advice, we're going to go through a shipwreck. They don't follow his advice. The ship wrecks. Uh, For for days upon days, they're just stranded at sea until uh, an angel comes to Paul and he tells him what to do. And he says, no, don't give up hope. We're going to make it. They get in lifeboats. They go to this island. The, uh, the, the, the natives greet him. They, they build a fire so that all of them will be warm. Snakes come out of the fire. They latch on to Paul, Paul's arm. Poisonous snakes. But he's unharmed. They think that he's some kind of God. And he's like, no, 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 no. I serve the real God. And here's who he is. They take him to the home of one of the leaders whose father is sick. Paul heals him, and the people who are transporting him from Caesarea to Rome are in awe of this prisoner who is unlike any prisoner they have ever had, who walks in power and authority and yet love and humility. They bring him to Rome, and there he's put under house arrest. When he says, what's happened to me, it's all of this big stuff that he's just gone through. He says, what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And you can imagine as Paul is brought under house arrest, brought into Rome, that he has a kind of legendary status. The people are amazed. Oh, this is the guy that we heard those stories about. The one who called the shipwreck, the one who who survived, the one who saw angels, the one who was attacked by poisonous snakes and yet survived, the guy who healed those people. And, And the jailers who brought him from Caesarea had to regard him with a kind of fear and awe, and everyone would know this is no ordinary criminal. Well, rather than being fearful or defensive as one might expect in the middle of all of this, being imprisoned, we find Paul to be poised. Poise counts. Anybody remember that from Seinfeld? Paul is poised. 
Paul is utterly himself. He even seems to be in, in control in this situation, and he's dedicated to advancing the gospel. We see that in the middle of all of this, he's carrying himself as a person who is confident that God is advancing his work through him. He's carrying himself, even when things are going very wrong, as a person who is confident and convinced that God is carrying on his work, that he's bringing on his good work to completion. And Paul's confidence, his assurance in the middle of wrongful imprisonment actually inspires other people to do the same. We see this in verse 14, the next slide there. It says, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. They're thinking, if Paul's not afraid, if he's confident in the middle of what he's gone through, then we're going to stand tall too. He inspires people. This week I was listening to verses 12 through 18 on the Dwell app on repeat, just again and again and again. I probably listened to it 25 or 30 times. And as I was listening to it and just imagining it, as Spencer said last week, this is a real person writing to real people. I was struck by Paul's reflexive confidence in Christ. And by reflexive, I, I mean it was his knee-jerk confidence in Christ. You don't get the sense that he was just like scrambling to find a silver lining and a way to like put lipstick on a pig. Uh, I don't think naive optimism probably would have survived two years of wrongful imprisonment. I think after one year, you're like, hey, God, I'm here for you. You're going to bail me out? You think after the, the shipwreck, that confidence would be beaten to a pulp, and when the snake bite happens, it's like, okay, we're done here. No, it's actually the difficulty of this situation has actually revealed what's really inside Paul's mind and heart all along. And in Paul's mind and heart is this exuberant confidence that God is advancing his work in the world. And this confidence produces in Paul a kind of buoyant joy. Something, something that is buoyant just keeps popping back up, keeps popping back up. You hit a helium balloon and it keeps rising. Or if you take an inflated ball like a basketball and you try to sink it as far down into like a pool as you can, it's just going to pop back up. In fact, the further deep you sink it, like the more energy there will be vertically going back up. Now, Paul has this kind of buoyancy. More than any sermon you ever preach, more than any explanation of your faith that you ever give, more than any social media post that you ever put out there, the way that you and I respond to difficulty is going to be the most important sermon we ever preach. How you conduct yourself when bad stuff happens is one of the most significant opportunities you have to share with the world or reveal to the world the hope that you have or the hope that you lack. Interestingly, how you respond to crisis, difficulty, death, but also really good things like fame and fortune, you know, life in the extremes, naturally brings to the surface the things that we actually believe at the core of who we are. Then you begin to wonder, how does one grow in this kind of poise? How can one, not knowing when bad things may happen, uh, be prepared, be on it, be poised, ready at a moment's notice to respond to the big ups and downs of life? And the truth is you cannot be prepared. 
for everything bad that could happen. And as the anxious among us know, there are millions and millions of things that could go wrong at any moment. So how does one develop, like Paul, this kind of buoyant joy that enables you to stay afloat even above water uh, when the waters are trying to rise above your head? And I think it's true, I think a secret here is that this kind of buoyant joy only grows indirectly. This kind of buoyant joy only grows indirectly or as a byproduct of something else. You don't grow more buoyant by trying to be more buoyant. And you don't grow in real joy by just trying to be a more joyful person. Buoyant joy is a byproduct of one's mind and heart having been trained and convinced that God is carrying on His work in the world. If you you don't believe in God, if you honestly don't believe that God is actively working in the world, despair is both inevitable and even logical. Despair makes sense as we watch the myth of progress disprove and disprove itself with each passing day. But in order to be reflexively buoyant and joyful necessitates some inflating or inspiring truth to keep bringing you back up to the surface. A belief in a reality beyond oneself. And for Paul, all of that is encoded into this phrase that he uses again and again in his letters, and it's that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is not just a hypothetical theological situation for Paul or a hypothetical theological belief that he's mentally ascribing to. For Paul, Paul has become convinced that in real time the resurrected Jesus is reigning over the earth. Like it actually happened. Paul has become convinced that the resurrected Son of God is reigning over the earth at the right hand of the Father and is actively carrying on His work in the world. And mysteriously, Paul understands that through faith in Jesus, all of us are gathered up with Him. We're seated with Him in the heavenly realms. And so His victory becomes ours. His reign becomes our reign. This is what he was getting at in Colossians chapter 3. It would would do your heart and mind so good to memorize Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Paul said, since then you have been raised with Christ. Remember, he sees us as mysteriously being caught up with Christ through faith in him. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your heart on things above. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, when Paul counsels against setting your mind and heart on earthly things, he doesn't mean don't go read the news. What he's doing is he's casting a vision for a life that is chiefly shaped by the reality of what's going on in heaven. And in heaven, the resurrected Christ reigns over all and is bringing his reign into the earth. And so for Paul, since Jesus Christ reigns, was raised and is reigning, and we're linked up to him, what's the worst that can happen? What's the worst they can do to me, says Paul, awaiting execution by the state? He says, for me to live is Christ. 
To die is gain. I win in both scenarios, says Paul. The, in Romans chapter 8, he says, I'm convinced neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ our Lord. So what can they do to me? The worst has already happened in the crucifixion of the Son of God, and that turned out all right. So maybe things are going to turn out all right for us too. For Paul, the more he lifts his eyes up, the more he lifts his heart up, the more he lifts his mind up, uh, the more he's like filled with this kind of buoyant joy. His mind and his heart are being trained to align with the reality that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and Jesus is reigning at the right hand of the Father. And the byproduct, what grows indirectly, is this kind of buoyant joy that enables him to respond with courage and confidence to what's going on around him. Now, I really believe this to be true, that to the degree that in increasing measures we set our minds and our hearts on things above, as we align with the kingdom, we're going to experience this kind of buoyant joy. The problem is I live most of my life like this. Oh, gosh, no, just staring at my feet. And don't you? Like, you just got stuff to do. We have four small humans in our house who require constant snacks. <laughs> who are constantly fighting off sleep. You know, and, and in my phase of life, maybe you feel like this too, I feel like there's not enough of me to go around at home and at work and maintain friendships and be a decent family member with my extended family. Like so much of life is right here and then you add to it core longings and frustrations and the noise of the world. I spend most of my life just looking at my feet. And rather than being trained to believe that Jesus is resurrected and reigning, I'm, I'm, I'm training myself to believe that it's actually all on my shoulders. My eyes are not up. My eyes are on my screens too much. I'm listening to my fears too much. I'm letting life happen to me too much, living out the worried victim's version of the Christian life rather than the life that was intended for us. Rather than proactively starting my day, keeping my eyes on heaven, letting my heart and mind dwell on things above, reminding my whole person that God reigns. My seriousness takes over when I'm discipled by my screens and my joy decreases, and so I'm shipwrecked emotionally so much of the time. It's a far cry from the buoyancy that Paul had in a much more difficult situation. But I believe that this kind of joyful buoyancy is available a more vibrant, a more generous, a more hopeful way to live, but it does mean we've got to lift our eyes up, to meditate on the most important thing in the world. The most important thing in the world is what God is doing in it, to let the Lord lead me to this place of confidence that He who began a good work, not only in me, not only in you, but on planet Earth, is going to carry it on to completion. We need to let our hearts be tethered to the truth that Jesus who was resurrected now reigns and therefore we have hope. We are not victims. We're hidden with Christ and God. We are always safe, therefore, in the kingdom of God. But this kind of transformation is simply impossible in a prayerless life in a prayerless life or in a scriptureless life. And, and if I'm really honest, I'm not praying or reading the Bible as much as I ought to 
And I would guess that 90%, 80 to 90% of our church is not praying or reading the Bible perhaps at all. And we don't want to just pray to say we have prayed or read Scripture just to say we have read Scripture. We pray and read Scripture to get our heads on straight and our hearts on straight about the deepest truths of existence, to derive from the risen Christ the kind of buoyant joy that helps us to be people of hope. I love when you have these moments where you get to catch a person in real time and see what they're really like. Um, My bishop is named Todd Hunter, and uh, there's a strange kind of situation that happened in our tribe of churches. There was a big church in Dallas that was going to exit our tribe and help start another one. And this was a point of some conversation because they were a large church, and, and this decision might have some financial consequences or logistical consequences. And so a couple of weeks ago, I got an email from Todd, and he explained why he was so open-handed about letting this church go. And and there's some really good stuff for you to hear. Todd said, people have wondered, why would I give away this church, one of our largest churches? Wouldn't we take a big hit financially, lose talented clergy, and maybe even diminish in status? Answer, this is simply an opportunity for me to practice what I preach. And listen to this line. He said, in the kingdom of God, there are enough resources for all of us. It's not a zero-sum game. In In the kingdom of God, there are enough resources for all of us. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. I am, and our tribe is, in the care of another. And so when we give as people and congregations and diocese, it will be given back. And this quoting scripture, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Todd said, I act on those ideas because they are core to my discipleship to Jesus. And this is the line that so resonated with me. He said, if I don't stay rooted in the loving, wise, and infinite capacity of God's kingdom, I will become a leader who uses others rather than one who seeks to be gracious, generous, and generative. He said, when we seek the kingdom of God, we are rich. We are billionaires in blessings. Billionaires in blessings. We can therefore give blessings. So may Dallas be blessed. May our denomination be blessed. May the will of the Spirit reign in Dallas. He's like, like I lose nothing with this. I'm a billionaire in blessings. Jesus reigns at the right hand of the Father. <laughs> We're fine. And that's the way that I want to live. And there's an invitation For God to realign our hearts and minds with the reality that He reigns over the earth, that He's amazingly enough inviting us to be part of His co-conspirators and bringing the kingdom of the world. But we have to learn and let the Lord Jesus lift up our heads, lift up our eyes to be seated at the right hand of the Father, deriving from Him the kind of buoyant joy that can help us to roll with the punches, to be confident and and composed poised, assured that he's carrying on his good work in all the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this message feels unbelievable when there's so many bad things that happen in the world, or at the very least, it feels like it could only be aspirational to truly stay buoyant when the world is just so messed up and complex. It's much easier to have faith in fatalism. 
It's much easier to have faith in our, our own ability to control things though we live every day the reality that we cannot. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, on this hot Sunday morning that you cause a fresh wind of your spirit to blow, consequence of it lifting up our eyes and our hearts and our minds and seeing you now reigning over the earth, bringing in your quiet and patient kingdom into the world. Fill us with hope and with patience to, to track with what you're doing in the world, even as we wait for you to return, to renew and restore all things. And so, Lord Jesus, as we receive communion, would you do the things that only you can do? Would you convince the sinner that you love them in spite of everything they've done? Would you please heal the sick? Would you please unite the church? Would you please encourage the weary? Would you please befriend the stranger? And would you remind all of us and fill all of us with the deep love that you have for the world? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.